Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Now here's your host, C.W. Hall. Good morning, everyone. It is CW, your host here on the Health Connect South Radio Show. We're coming up just a couple of weeks away from this year's Health Connect South event, going to be held at the Georgia Aquarium, September 21st. Make sure that you go to healthconnectsouth.com and get registered for the event. Our friends of the show can use the promo code RADIOX when they're registering to get a discount on their registration. Make sure you share that with your peers and colleagues. Uh, Let them know that this opportunity is available for them to take advantage of. I'm very pleased to have with us in the studio today uh, one of our guests from a local company, T3, that uh, works with organizations that are recently developed healthcare technology devices. They are the training end of, of that process where physicians and other healthcare providers come join T3 Labs to learn how to to utilize some of the the new technology that has come through GCMI. Uh, That's right. And they handle uh, some of that. So Deepal Panchal is with us from T3 Labs, going to be talking a little bit about what they're doing over there. Thanks for sitting in with us in the studio. You're welcome. And then we have Dr. Neil Weintraub. He's with us uh, on the phone from uh, Augusta, I think, right? That's right. Thanks for having me. At the Medical College of Georgia, Augusta University, Dr. Neil Weintraub is a cardiologist, and he's actually one of the speakers that is going to be on a panel at the upcoming event uh, addressing approaches to trying to manage and reduce the rate of occurrence of cardiovascular disease. It's one of those top 10 disease states that World Health Organization has identified as a major problem for us around the globe, actually. Dr. Weintraub does some research around how they can go about trying to reduce the rate of occurrence and some factors that come into play. And we'll start with Dr. Weintraub. So thanks for taking some time this morning, Dr. Weintraub. I know you're real busy. That's right. Thanks so much for having me. We were talking a little bit as we were kind of working through some of uh, technology uh, challenges with me for this morning as we got started. Dr. Weintraub, talk about how you got into medicine, what, what made you go down that path, and then more particularly sparked your interest in the cardiology side of things. My interest in medicine more or less came up from my overall interest in science and in the biology overall of health and disease. So I was very much influenced by people in South Georgia where I grew up. Um, We had a a lot of people there who had actually come through the Medical College of Georgia, which is one of the reasons I have come back to my home state. Um, But I've always been just fascinated by science, by medicine. Why do people get diseases? What can we do to try to figure it out? And do better in terms of treatment. One of the things that we talked about that is a major factor, uh, there's a number of them that come into play with regards to whether or not you develop heart disease, obviously genetics being one of them, but one that is fairly preventable is is obesity. And from what I understand, Dr. Weintraub, that is one of those factors that, as I say, is is both preventable on a large scale as well as somewhat challenging at the same time just because it has to do with you know lifestyle choices and and can be kind of cultural in a way depending on where you live around the country that's right and you know cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of death worldwide and we have done a great job over the past few decades in better understanding the causes and if you go back in the past we really did learn a lot about cholesterol and smoking and have dealt with those very effectively 
Um, the reduction in smoking prevalence has had a big impact. Our treatment of hyperlipidemia has had a big impact. But yet we still are dealing with a lot of cardiovascular disease. And most people believe the obesity epidemic, which is actually fairly recent, is largely to blame. And so this is what we've been focusing on in our own research. Um, also, I will tell you, as a practicing cardiologist, I and others have seen an unusual trend of very young people, particularly women, coming in with heart attacks, which we never used to see in the previous generation. And virtually all of these young women will be obese diabetics. So that's another example of the impact of obesity on cardiovascular disease. Interesting. What sort of age range are you talking about when you're, when you're describing these young women? I would say in the past probably three years, I've seen three women less than 30 come in with heart attacks. Uh, the youngest, I believe, is 24. And you never used to see this no. in, the, in the prior generation unless the patient had a condition known as familial hypercholesterolemia. But now it's actually something we see on a regular basis. When I was working in the hospital, I worked with cardiovascular intensive care patients. That was where I did my nursing work at the time. And the youngest person I had seen through the years I did that was a 33-year-old man. And he was one of those people that you talked about that he had you know, a significant history of cholesterol that they weren't able to bring under control. What do you think is, the, is behind that trend? Is it the fact that we are getting more obese at a younger age and therefore the the, the, the stresses and the hormones and all those things that can come with that condition uh, are coming into play and therefore exerting their influence sooner? It's very difficult to say for sure. Now, most of these patients I've seen are diabetics. And, you know, we didn't used to see what we call obesity-related or type 2 diabetes until people reached their middle age. But because of the epidemic of obesity, you probably have been reading about this. We're seeing it in children. And so if you develop this problem when you're a teenager, by the time you reach the age of late 20s or early 30s now, you've already been exposed to this abnormal milieu. And the whole milieu of diabetes, as you know, includes high glucose levels, but also dyslipidemia, um, systemic inflammation, and all of these things can over time trigger the development of cardiovascular disease. Talk about what you th what you believe to be the the the, the root of that you know, that inflammation that we talked about, what, is that a dietary thing? Is it a genetic thing that comes along? Is it, is it increased when I have excess weight as in, you know, obesity? What, what causes that component? Yes, it's It's very closely linked to body mass index or obesity. So we've been studying in the cardiovascular field, this, this inflammation process now for a couple of decades. And it, we know that it strongly associates with body mass index and other parameters of metabolic disease. And, and for example, if you lose weight, your CRP levels, which is a marker of inflammation, will come down. What, what in particular, you, with the research that you're doing around obesity, what particular facets of it are you trying to focus on and identify, you know, maybe different ways that we can look at this? So we study a couple of major areas. One of the things that my laboratory focuses on is something called epigenetics. And epigenetics is a, a field of understanding how genes are regulated independent of the actual genetic code. So with epigenetics, there are um, changes in the pattern of gene expression that typically are environmentally linked that may in turn influence diseases. A good example is um, if you were born uh, to a obese mother or from an obese mother, you're more likely to be obese yourself as a child. So the mother's gene expression patterns can be passed on to the offspring 
through these epigenetic mechanisms. And likewise, when people gain weight, it can be very hard to lose it. Your body tends to adapt to a certain weight, and that's in part because of these epigenetic influences. The second area that we're interested in is looking at how to moderate um, obese states by focusing on the skeletal muscle as a protective tissue in obesity-related metabolic disease, the sort of fat that's fit hypothesis. What would be the link there as far as the the muscles themselves being able to exert some sort of perfect protective effect? So the muscle is one of the tissues that is most important in glucose um, utilization and metabolism. In general, the more fit you are with your, in terms of your skeletal muscle function, the more readily you'll, you'll handle blood glucose levels and improve your diabetes state. And you can also look at this sort of from the general standpoint, say take an NFL lineman. An NFL lineman may be obese based upon their body mass index and even their fat mass, but yet they're often metabolically healthy because of their skeletal muscle function. Interesting. So we're trying to understand how do we identify people whose skeletal muscle function um, puts them at risk for metabolic disease? What kind of tests can we develop to measure this? And then what can we do to, to make an intervention? You know, many of our patients aren't capable of heavy physical exercise. So we're looking at other approaches. Now, is it, it's not as simple, I guess, as the more healthy and I guess maybe more muscle mass that you have that you can begin to develop this sort of protective effect that you're talking about? Is it deeper than that, I guess, it sounds like? I think that there's truth to that um, in terms of your skeletal muscle, your skeletal muscle mass being protective. The question is, um, are there other ways to get the skeletal muscles to function properly, especially for people who are not able to do that kind of exercise, um, or they've waited till a late phase of their lives and they have not built up the skeletal muscle strength in an earlier stage? So I, I think that's where the real question lies and what kind of approaches will work. With regards to the research that you're doing on this impact of obesity and some of the factors around it, you're talking about how... Uh, skeletal muscle can can contribute potentially some measure of protective effect in in this disease state. Where are you in regard to that research effort? Are you very far along? And and you know, are there certain resources around that more patients, for example? What are you looking for around that that research initiative? So we have an interdisciplinary group here at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University, and I work within the Vascular Biology Center closely with a colleague, David Steph who's a basic scientist studying this whole uh, question. And in addition, we have something called the Georgia Prevention Institute, uh, which is, was developed some years ago by Dr. William Strong, pediatric cardiologist, looking at the clinical aspects of, of cardiovascular disease risk. But working together, we are focusing on these proteins called myokines. And these are specific proteins that are made in the skeletal muscle that can influence skeletal muscle function, but also work as a paracrine mediator throughout the body to affect other tissues. And so that's what we're focusing on, specific myokine pathways. Are there particular collaborations that you would benefit from around that research, whether it's, I don't know, whatever it might be, whether it's other organizations participating or just more, pay, more people? Are there things that, as you sit around the table discussing where you are with that research or are there resources that you're seeking? That's part of what we're trying to do here with our Health Connect South initiative and platform is to be able to put researchers and other organizations that are trying to develop healthcare solutions together with resources that will help them move faster. Yes, and, and I think as our research unfolds, these kind of partnerships will definitely become important. 
Um, you know, most of us who do research are focused on getting federal uh, resources like NIH grants, uh, maybe American Heart Association grants or Diabetes Association grants. But as we develop our own ideas and potentially patent our ideas, um, that would require developing some sort of partnership with industry to see if these could be moved forward into the clinics. And I have some experience doing this in other areas of research that I've been involved with. I think beyond the research side, though, partnerships are also important to get out the educational message that we need to get to the citizens of our state um, to help deal with this um, epidemic, the obesity epidemic, from the standpoint of lifestyle measures. And we talked about the fact that obesity being one of the big contributing factors to development of heart disease. As a physician, when you're dealing with patients, you talked about education and, 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 and improving awareness among the population to try to help begin to make changes in these lifestyle choices. I mean, as a physician, have you found some approach to dealing with this conversation with patients as we discussed before we went on the air today? That's one of the facets that's just very challenging. Uh, if you maybe you live in an area of the state or an area of a metropolitan area that doesn't have good access to, say, a grocery store with fresh foods that, that can be better choices, how do you handle that conversation around changing what can be a years-long behavior? It's very difficult, but I try to encourage people to take baby steps and to celebrate with small successes instead of try to make sweeping changes in everything. In my experience, it doesn't work when people so-called turn over a new leaf and join a health club or go into some sort of a crash diet. It's often little things, though, when added together that can make a huge difference. For example, I've noticed a lot of patients just aren't aware of caloric density, and they don't understand that certain things they're eating habitually or eating out on a regular basis is really resulting in a disruption of their, their metabolic state. And likewise, um, people will resist or not be able to do heavy exertion, but doing small things can make a big difference on a daily basis, just taking frequent walks even. So I try to engage people at that level, and then as I see them back in my clinic, um, celebrate their successes rather than just be negative or, or um, criticize people for what they haven't done. If you look around, I, I'm here in Atlanta, if you look around the community, I mean, you can see just how prevalent obesity is just with your eyes. But I mean, statistically, when we look at our state, I mean, how, how do we rank? How are we doing? And uh, are we on an upward or a downward trend? Well, you, I'm sure you're aware that we do rank amongst the worst in the nation in terms of obesity prevalence. But the good news is I think the obesity rates have begun to level off in this state, as well as the childhood obesity rates. But as I mentioned earlier, um, people aren't aware of the long-term impact of uh, being obese what that really means. And, and I also will often tell my patients that you're okay now, you're functioning all right, you feel okay, but think about it when you're 70 or 80 years old, if you don't make a change now, you're going to be dependent on someone else. Your family will have to physically take care of you. Um, so we have to think about what this will mean long term. When it comes to taking care of somebody once obesity is a part of their healthcare picture, I mean, does it change your approach that, that you have to take with them? I mean, strategically, medically, how, how, do you, how does it change the process for you as a physician? It, it changes it dramatically. And I also will tell my patients this, but for example, the young women that, that I mentioned that had presented with heart attacks, 
it's very difficult sometimes to make that diagnosis. That would not be the first thing you think about when a patient comes in with symptoms that are oftentimes confusing and can be mistaken for other, for other conditions that are more common in a young woman. So just number one, making a diagnosis of heart disease in an obese patient can be difficult. Secondly, the sort of tests we do, for example, imaging the heart, the quality of the testing is just can be impaired specifically um, due to body habitus. And then third, the ability to withstand certain procedures, the complication rate can be much higher. But this is not really part of the statistics that we learn about when people think about prevalence of disease. They don't often think about the impact of the disease on treatment. I know I've got you in the, in the early part of your morning, and I'll try to get you back to that soon. Um, but before we run out of time, I mean, as you're talking to colleagues, do you have a message for peers maybe in the primary care space or just other members of the multi-specialty team out there with whom a physician like yourself would potentially interact? I mean, do you have thoughts for them around how to tackle the issue of obesity in their patients and how it plays into heart disease or other factors like this that may change the way they talk to the patient about these particular issues or, or any other thoughts that might help maybe hasten the, the, the rate at which we curb this, this particular facet of, of risk? I think the first um, point is that they need to be aware of the risk of cardiovascular disease in, in especially younger people with severe obesity and with metabolic disease. I think a lot of physicians are biased thinking, well, this patient can't have heart disease. They're too young. Let me tell you something. They absolutely can. And the symptoms may be nonspecific and difficult to interpret. So number one, I would strongly recommend that people think about this when they encounter patients with symptoms that may not be specific, but yet nevertheless may be suspicious. And then secondly, prevention requires education. It's difficult because you don't have much time in primary care to spend with people. But if the patients really begin to understand the issues we've talked about today, they may be able to make these small steps that will lead to a better outcome. I've been talking with Dr. Weintraub. He is a cardiologist, uh, going to be one of the speakers on a panel here at our upcoming Health Connect South event, discussing, as we have been here, heart disease and various aspects of it, particularly obesity and some other risk factors that come along with that, that can really significantly impact the extent to which somebody develops cardiovascular disease, puts them in greater risk for developing cardiovascular disease, makes it that much more challenging for a physician and their, their support uh, to be able to deal with it once it's been diagnosed. And, and, and Dr. Weintraub, uh, do you have a need for additional patients? Are you looking to expand the, the, the study that you're doing in any, any way such that if folks knew about it, they might be able to you know, either lend uh, folks who would participate or other resources? The research that we're doing here in Augusta really clinically involves the Georgia Prevention Institute, and we've got a fairly sizable population that has been followed and studied through the, through the decades. In fact, they actually have um, children and grandchildren as some of the early participants in this study. Um, interestingly, we have a, a population of about 500 pairs of twins that we're studying. And so that will really enable us to separate environmental influences from genetic causes of obesity, again, looking at the impact of skeletal muscle biology. So I do think if there are, are potentially people interested, the Georgia Prevention Institute here in Augusta is a great place um, for clinical research of this nature. 
If you want more information about what they're doing there at Augusta University and the Medical College of Georgia, you can go to augusta.edu slash center slash VBC slash N Weintraub. Weintraub is W-E-I-N-T-R-A-U-B dot P-H-P. And you can get more information there. I'll have a link to the website as well so that you can go over and get some information about the work that Dr. Weintraub is doing, perhaps be able to reach out to him if you need to, if you're one of the physicians in the area that may want to know a little bit more about uh, work that they're doing there or things that they've discovered that might possibly help uh, uh, another physician provider. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing what you have to say as part of the upcoming panel on the, uh, the 21st. Yes, thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to it as well. Do you have any final thoughts before I let you get back to your morning? Only final thoughts would be to not be discouraged for those of you out there listening, whether you're a healthcare provider or a patient, and think about the small steps that I mentioned. Think about telling your, your loved ones as well. Um, it is never too late, never too late to make those changes. Well, thanks so much for making some time uh, this morning, Dr. Weintraub. We'll have to connect with you when you're here in Atlanta here in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much, CW. I've enjoyed it. All right, man. We'll talk to you uh, at the event. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. And coming up next, we have with us in the studio from T3 Labs. Uh, we've had folks from T3 join us in the studio on a couple of occasions. Recently went through uh, coming together with GCMI mm-hmm. into one roof. Uh, we've got D. Paul Panchal with us from T3 Labs. Thanks for sitting in. You're welcome. And talk about your work there with T3. So at T3 Labs, I am a program director. Um, I'm a biomedical engineer by training. Um, and my primary focus is uh, working with uh, cardiovascular, cardiothoracic device entrepreneurs, um, help them test their product, be it preclinical testing or working with GCMI to help them prototype their devices and eventually bring them to market. Would you find that the typical entrepreneur that's coming up with these devices, is are they physicians in most cases or are they people that are just kind of around healthcare maybe coming up with good ideas? Well, it usually starts with a physician entrepreneur. Um, you know, there's the back of the napkin idea. You know, they're working in hospitals, working with patients all the time, testing out new devices, and there's always room for improvement. So that's typically how the idea starts, and then it gets passed on to engineers, or they collaborate with larger device uh, manufacturers to design new devices or redesign uh, older devices. I spent my clinical time in nursing, working in the intensive care unit, recovery room, and the emergency room. And in those environments, have all kinds of equipment from monitors to uh, a host of, you know, just clinical interventional devices of different types, many of them monitoring sensors and others. What is the process like for going from that back of the napkin moment that you talked about to? getting some of those medical devices that are used to save lives in ER and ICU to the market. Right. So, you know, as Dr. Weintraub mentioned, partnerships are important. So any new device requires a whole network of experts to get to market, Um, be it prototyping, be it testing, be it regulatory approvals, um, submissions, um, data analysis, you require people that are experts in the field. Um, that's where institutions such as T3 Labs and GCMI come into play. 
because we help uh, entrepreneurs get from concept to cure to commercialization um, in one spot. So they can take that back of the napkin idea and, as an example, go to GCMI and say, hey, I have this idea. Can I can you help me prototype this device? And they have a host of engineers available to help them design the device. Maybe they just imagined in their head and they don't necessarily understand how to fabricate the device. Um, sometimes it's a reality check for a lot of entrepreneurs because they have this idea and they haven't quite imagined how it's going to uh, work out in real life or in an actual patient. When it comes to being an innovator in you know this type of healthcare technology, I mean, how, from what I understand, it can take a good period of time mm-hmm. to go from that idea on napkin to actually devices being sold in the clinical setting. I mean, how, how can I accelerate that period of time that it takes to get there? Yeah, so the medical device development product lifecycle is not small. It's, it's, it takes a pretty long time. Um, you have uh, what we call the $1,000 days. So, and I'm sure you've heard this before from some of my colleagues, but, you know, every day that you spend trying to prototype a design, every day you spend trying to design it or train a physician on it or test it is adding to your overall budget. And so our goal is always to minimize those thousand dollar days. Um, and I think, um, you know, my advice always is save your time and money and leave it to the experts. It's all about collaborative planning. When I say that, I mean, you know, getting the right people in the room. There's experts available that will help you design your preclinical study from start to finish. Well, what's a preclinical study? It's a bunch of tests that you need to do in live animals or cadaveric models and gather the data and submit that to the FDA. Because guess what? The FDA is not going to allow you to Uh, market your device without the appropriate approvals. Um, They have a bunch of guidance documents um, to get those approvals. So leave it to the experts would be my advice. Um, Preclinical testing, there are labs such as us, uh, contract research organizations that will design your study from start to finish, that will gather all of your data, um, that will put your submission together and submit it to the FDA, and that will eventually reduce your um, $1,000 days. Can you talk about some of the types of devices that you've worked on there at T3 Labs where you're training some of these healthcare professionals how to use these types of devices? Absolutely. So, you know, we work in a number of uh, therapeutic areas, everything from cardiovascular to orthopedics. Uh, But because we're talking about cardiovascular disease today, Um, We have worked with devices such as transcatheter mitral valve replacements. Uh, We have done coronary stenting. Uh, We've worked with devices that are fully resorbable stents. Uh, Just recently, we worked with the uh, A-lung respiratory assist device. It's it's a carbon dioxide removal system and actually just got approval from the FDA for compassionate use. What's What's that status mean? That status basically means that it uh, has approval ahead of any formal IDE or 510K approvals so that they can, before it's, it's um, sold in the market, they can use it in patients as a compassionate use. 
because they have determined that this device is safe enough to help save the life of a patient. What sort of patient is that device going to be used with? Typically patients that have uh, lung disease. And so it's, it's, is it one that would be used in the hospital or is it a, a device that I'm using outside the hospital? It would be used in the hospital. Okay. It's, a, uh, it's a bedside. I got you. Yep. And you were saying that there's now the capability of doing a mitral valve replacement through a catheter. Absolutely. <laughs> Things have changed since I was working in the they hospital have, a few and, years ago. Yeah, and they have changed in the last seven years, too. You know, when I entered this field, I remember seeing mitral valve replacements done surgically. Yeah. Um, they took forever. That's you know, right. You have to put the patient on bypass. Yep. And, you know, it's it was just a an open heart five, surgery. Five, six hour yeah. operation. And now you have valve replacements that are done transcatheter. So they're accessing through like the femoral artery. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, you just need a couple sheets. And, you know, the, the valve goes through one introducer and your imaging device goes through the other. And they're, they're typically done in under an hour. When a company comes through GCMI and 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 the the process there and and then is working with T3 Labs on the training side of things, what what can I expect if I'm a, a clinician to you know work with T3 on on these types of devices? So um, you know T T3 Labs offers preclinical testing and training. So if you have a device that is already marketed. Um, you, we can help you train all of your sales force, all of your physicians that are going to be using the device. So be it um, training in animals or in cadavers. Uh, but at the same time, uh, once you go through the process of training, a lot of times you realize that you have to redesign the device. There's improvements that need to be made. And that's where preclinical testing comes into play. When I say preclinical testing, we help you design the protocol on how this device is going to be implanted. What are the tests you're going to be doing on the animal or the cadaver? What kind of blood work? What follow-ups are needed? Um, it would just be like you would implant in a patient, but we would do it in animate models. And then we, our study directors, will help you, su- will help suggest improvements to the device based on that. Um, you know, hey, have you considered thermogenicity testing? Have you considered leaving it in for 90 days? What happens when it sits in a live environment for mm-hmm. six whole months? Have you considered calcification? So we help that entire process move along and then put together a final study report for regulatory agencies with all of the data that has been collected. When you, you, we've talked a little bit about the whole idea on a napkin mm-hmm. kind of concept. And and from what I understand, I mean, it's difficult sometimes for those individuals who are coming up with these innovative ideas to determine whether or not there's already something like that out there in the medical community, mm-hmm. or if the idea is one that solves a problem that's novel enough that it would make sense to actually bring it to market. I mean, what would you say to those people in terms of, uh, I've got this, what I think is a great idea, mm-hmm. What do they do with it? What do they do with it? Call T3. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Um, you know, we we realize it's very difficult for entrepreneurs to navigate the space. Uh, it can be very difficult to figure out where to start. You know, do I start with where do I go? Where do I take my device and who's going to test it for me? Who is going to give me the correct advice on which regulatory body um, to pursue or what regulatory approval 
to pursue. And like I said earlier on, um, I think it's best to leave it to the experts. Um, at GCMI and at T3, uh, we have engineers that have several years of experience. And chances are that we've seen a device like that before or something similar. We will be suggesting improvements. We want to find the most efficient way to to optimize your time um, and to optimize the utility of the device. I think if you have a back of the napkin ad- idea, call GCMI first, you know, to start a prototyping process. And then once you actually have a prototype ready, uh, we at T3 would be more than happy to help you test out the device in a real life environment. Are there some, as it relates to, we were talking a little bit about cardiology today, obviously with Dr. Weintraub earlier, are there some devices that are in that space in cardiology that that can come through the T3 labs that you find uh, are some particularly successful ones? That oh, absolutely. Um, the most recent one being a, a fully bioresorbable uh, scaffold, or back in the day, they called it a stent. It's, a, it's for coronary artery stenting, um, arteries that develop plaque and eventually have to have a stent placed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't actually name the device, but... Um, there was a lot of research done at T3 Labs for uh, that device. It was actually a, a four-year-long study that we did in uh, in swine. And you said it's resorbable. It's fully resorbable. So the the purpose, uh, the thought behind that, I guess, being that the longer a stent stays in, the more likely that clots are plaques are going to want to try to form along those stents? Yeah, it's the whole concept of restenosis and mechanical injury. You know, back in the day, you had the old metal stent that actually caused injury to your vessel. Mm -hmm. Um, And so over time, you are rebuilding that uh, tissue around that stent and you actually have a higher rate of restenosis. So you can get, I guess, like a scarring almost. Absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. So So if it's resorbable, then it goes away. It, it's there for a period of time, but then I guess the the thought being that now that we've cleared out the blockage and we've got the lumen open mm-hmm. with the stent, that if we hold it open for a temporary period, mm-hmm. you're saying that maybe the lining can reestablish itself and still exactly. be a patent lumen. Exactly. Wow. Yep. Very intriguing. So the tissue models itself with the scaffold. Now, did that device actually go on to commercialization or is it still it in did. the early it phases? Did. Okay. It did. Wow. Any others that you can think of? Um, you know, the other ones uh, that I just mentioned was the transcatheter uh, mitral valve replacement. So yeah. we've done a whole ton of research on transcatheter mitral valve replacement at T3. Um, and we've actually done some transcatheter aortic valve replacements, right. too. And that's very exciting yeah. because, Th- you know, those are another one that were a really significant surgery that was difficult to recover from, from, from the massive incision, if nothing else. Exactly. So, you know, those surgeries that were five to six hours long have mm-hmm. now gone down to an hour under. Um, and that's very exciting because that uh, helps with patient recovery time. And for us, it helps us to come full circle because um, it's something that we've been working towards. With regards to ple- preclinical testing, anything going on right now that's exciting that, that you can maybe uh, give a sneak peek at? Yeah, I, you know, I always say that working at T3 is like a biomedical engineer's dream come true because... <laughs> 
every day I get to see a new device. And so I'm excited every single day. But um, we're most excited about working with our Georgia Tech investigators. You know, now through our collaboration with GCMI and the Culture Foundation, we have access to all these great Georgia Tech engineers and investigators that are developing cardiovascular uh, devices to help fight cardiovascular disease. So um, there's a couple of investigators that have forward-looking IVUS catheters. IVUS is intravascular ultrasound. It actually helps you visualize the inside of an artery. Mm-hmm. So there's investigators that are developing that. There are investigators that are working on cardiac regeneration using stem cell therapy. Um, and it's mainly for kids that have uh, that are born with heart defects. So those are a couple projects we're excited about. So you're talking about using the stem cell therapy to maybe be able to address things like uh, patent ductus and different things like that? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. Well, uh, you know, I know it's all about partnerships and collaborations with T3 Labs. Uh, Deepal, do, do you know of, of the types of partnerships or collaborations that T3 is seeking to forward what you're trying to do there with regards to develop of development of healthcare technology? We would love to collaborate with any physician entrepreneur, any entrepreneur that wants to accelerate their um, device market. Um, So come to us with your back of the napkin idea and we will help you prototype that device. We will help you see that in reality and test it. Um, Those are the partnerships we're looking for. We're also looking for, um, you know, partnerships with um, with you know, VCs or um, angel investigators or investors that actually invest in this kind of technology um, because chances are that they have access to a whole network of entrepreneurs that we don't. And they have access to a whole network of entrepreneurs that don't know what to do with their back of the napkin ideas. And we want to let them know that we're here to help. If you want information about T3, T3 Labs, you can go to t3labs.org, and that is the number three. Anywhere else that they can go information-wise to, to get linked up? Yeah, so uh, the GCMI website is great, too. It's uh, www.devices.net. Um, so they will help you with the design and prototyping. Well, uh, Deepal Panchal of T3 Labs, I appreciate you coming in to sit in with us in the studio today to talk about how you are facilitating development of healthcare technology as it relates to uh, cardiology and a host of other issues that uh, healthcare technology can face. But uh, this morning we were talking a little bit about some of the cool things that they are doing there at T3 Labs and GCMI that are helping to uh, address some of those cardiology problems that we were talking about earlier. Some really amazing mm-hmm. innovations that are significantly changing the way that we're treating some of these serious problems, like you were talking about mitral valve. Uh, replacement. That's that's amazing to be able to go from what was a very significant open heart surgery to now just a minimally invasive mm-hmm. procedure that takes just a little, you know, hour or two to do and and recover from must be significantly faster and overall better. So very cool technology that's being developed right here in our backyards at T3 Labs in conjunction with GCMI and the folks at Georgia Tech. Uh, any final thoughts before we let you get back over to the office? Like I said, you know, we are here to help and um, leave it to the experts. 
Well, if you have not done so already, make sure you get to healthconnectsouth.com. Go over and register for the upcoming Health Connect South event. We're going to be focused on some of the top disease states that are affecting our populations around the globe. Uh, having experts come in and talk about some of the research that they are doing, as Dr. Weintraub talked about earlier, uh, some of the work that they're doing on technology side of things as they are at T3 Labs that we've learned about here with Deepal. And um, make sure that you tell your colleagues about it. It's a great opportunity. The folks that are there at the event are definitely there in part to learn, but also to meet other or organizations that are out there either doing research or, or that have some sort of resources that may be a great fit for them with regards to collaboration and partnership. So we hope you show up and bring plenty of cards and uh, an interest in linking up with other collaborators from around the southeastern region. And if you've not done so already, make sure you go to the upper left-hand corner of the Health Connect South radio show page, and you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you to the iTunes store where the podcast lives. Make sure you subscribe to us, and that way each week when the new episode comes out, it'll be downloaded straight to your device to listen to whenever it's convenient for you. We appreciate being partners of the Health Connect South platform, helping organizations like T3 and others come here and have a, a, a media platform through which they can share information about the work that they're doing and hopefully potentially identify other partners and collaborations that would help them. All the folks over at uh, Health Connect South and uh, Paul and the folks at Ride to Market, we want to say thanks so much for being great partners. We look forward to catching up with you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 